on the mountain top where all the pressures drop hills we've got to climb forgot the problems of your mind Hello, welcome to The Human Odyssey. This is episode 11. I'm Skander, joined always by my wonderful co-host Jamie, to the tune this time of London electronic band Dreadzone and their song Mountain. We're joined today by William Gosling from the University of Amsterdam. William is an associate professor at the Institute for Biodiversity and Ecosystem Dynamics at their Faculty of Science, but he's also served for a decade now as the Chair of Education for the British Ecological Society. William, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you, Skander. Happy to join you here. Yeah, thanks for coming along. Um, and before we even get into any sort of topics or, or even your professional history, I just wanted to say a big happy birthday. <laughs> remembered. <laughs> yeah, how does it feel uh, having your birthday in quarantine? Yeah, it's 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 okay. I think we've got kind of used to this quarantined life now, and uh, they they changed the rules a little bit. But actually, working from home now is is set up. Teaching is working online so the workaround is the kids will be home from school at 12 o'clock because uh, they have to come home for lunch uh, mm-hmm. so that's um, also keeps us uh, busy so there's a there's a new routine so i'm sure we'll have a happy birthday uh, from home but thank you very much for that <laughs> of course so people should know that you're not just a, a paleocologist mm-hmm. i hope i'm saying that right mm-hmm. uh, I've, i'm not gonna lie uh, during the research part of this before this call uh i was having a bit of a hard time with that word um <laughs> but I'm, I'm hoping i don't i don't butcher it too much so you used to teach earth science um and then you worked for the british ecological society as the chair of education and careers committee which i guess was maybe kind of like a, a side job to your main job of of being a, a an associate professor yeah so my my employment is uh, through uh, the University of Amsterdam at the moment. Um, and I have worked for a number of years. I've been involved with the British Ecological Society since 2005, I think, in various guises. And I'm currently, uh, well, the outgoing, just about to finish my ter- second term as chair of their Education and Careers Committee, which is um, is dealing with how... Um, we support our members in terms of their careers, but also how we think about uh, reaching out beyond the scientific community. Um, the British Ecological Society is a scientific society with about 5,000 scientific members, but it, um, and most of them are academic, but we want to communicate our science, the science of ecology to, to the broader public. And that's the part of the society I'm involved in. The society also does academic publishing. It gives out research grants and does, um, well, fabulous conferences. Uh, we're trying to trying to work out how to do that in this new online environment still. But um, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's really a kind of home for ecologists, uh, certainly in the UK and across the rest of the world as well. It's not just a British-based organization these days. I think um, I'll definitely try and get into contact with them to see if we can maybe get some interviews going with some other heads of the of the society or, or maybe just even members yeah no i'm sure they'd be be super excited they they they'll they're very keen to to communicate science uh, and to um to promote science in in a very general sense um and engaging with curriculum develop through from curriculum development of gcse's through to uh through to um, delivery of a- academic um, PhDs and, and mm. finding a platform for scientists to conduct 
conduct cutting edge research, ideally. So, um, yeah, no, it's been a fun organization to be involved with for a long time. I I feel like even though your research has been uh, very, I I mean, from what I could tell, at least, I don't know if you would agree to that, um, has been quite general. It seems like there's Mm -hmm. been a lot of different topics that you've you've touched upon. There's one I couldn't really understand, uh, which was your PhD um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) on neotropical forests and savanna characterization by pollen spectra yeah so um that was when i started working in the tropics i did that at the university of leicester between 2000 2004 and before that my my background was i well i wanted to do archaeology when i was at school and my dad said um that um there probably wasn't any money in being an archaeologist so i didn't end up doing a physical geography degree and through that i got into trying to understand past environmental change. So not just the people in the environments, but how does that stuff, um, how, do, how do they interact with that? And so sort of kind of archaeology, but from more an ecological, physical point of view. I then went on and did a master's degree in quaternary science. And the quaternary is the last 2.6 million years. Uh, mm-hmm. And that what changed through that period of time, that's the period where humans evolved that's the period where the ecosystems and the environment that we live within today came into the sort of configurations that we have around us today. And it's kind of my interesting, my work's very general, but it's all really focused on understanding how did we get here? How did the earth come to look like this? How do we put what we're doing and seeing today into that kind of context of um, long-term change? So my PhD which was my first opportunity to, to work in the tropics. I had some very, in my master's degree, I had some very inspirational lecturers working in South America. And I went, uh, went across to, up to Leicester University to do this. And the idea was, so if you want to understand the past, if you want to go deep back in time and see how things changed, you've got to understand what it looks like today. So my, my PhD, which was characterizing these ecosystems, was going into... So what does a tropical rainforest look like in the microfossils that it produces? Because if we're going to go into the past and track the history of, of that forest, we need to know how it's represented in those fossils. So we went out into, into Bolivia on the southern edge of Amazonia, and we put lots of little plastic funnels in different vegetation plots where people, other people have been out and identified the plants and we left these little plastic funnels out there um, for a year and then came back and collected them and just saw what had fallen into them. And one of the things I really like about paleoecology, it's in this reference for, for UK audience really, is it's very blue Peter science. So it's very like you can make this stuff at home. It was a, it literally mm. like a plastic funnel that you, you have in your kitchen and we stuck some cotton wool in it and we put some mosquito net over the top and put it on a stake and left it in, in the forest for a year and then came back and got it, washed out what had fallen into it, and then I spent three years identifying it. We did that for three years. And so, uh, and at the end of that, what do you come out with? You go, well, this is what the forest looks like. This is what the savanna looks like. This is what a different sort of forest looks like. And then you can go into the ancient sediments. You can look back into history and start to see when those things changed oh yeah at this point in time we had more forest taxa less forest taxa savannah and so we can start to think about how those things change 
So that was my PhD. So a bit explained. Thanks for that. Yeah, no, that, that sounds really interesting. Um, but, but I don't know if I, I could spend three years on a, a single project personally. It sounds that like is, a big commitment. That is one of the things. When I, one of the questions for like any PhD interview that we do is like, you've got to really want to do this project because <laughs> like it's like, and I've seen people who like, and the only reason to take on a PhD project, I give this advice to anybody is like, that you want to know about this subject because you're going to spend a lot of time doing it. And there's a lot of variety within a PhD. I mean, my PhD involved field work in South America, which was incredible. It involved developing chemical protocols in the lab and getting my hands dirty in, with trying to extract these things that we collected out of the cotton wool. Like you put all these things in there and then get them back out again. And a lot of time on a microscope, identifying very, very small things. I mean, the identification of fossil pollen is really like an exceptionally complicated game of snap, right? Except like, so you've basically got... In these tropical, if, if you're doing pollen analysis in Europe or sort of temperate regions, you probably need to know 20 or 30 different shapes to be pretty good. Like, there's a lot more, but like, you can get the most of them. Working in the tropics, you need to have like a numbers, and diversity is just a different issue there. So, you're trying to hold hundreds of different shapes in your head. And we've developed various computer databases now to do this because it's essentially impossible. Uh, to, you kind of know it's roughly this thing, and then you trace it down with lots of photographs. So uh, you guys need an AI help to, to play Snap then? It's really... So the automatic recognition of pollen has been a massive challenge. People have been trying to do it since the 1970s, and nobody's got there yet because the preservation so if you think about it, if you've got a perfect pollen grain it's a 3d thing and it rotates and you can um so it can be in any orientation but then if you're pulling it out of sediment it's not a purely clean thing and it's also could have been in the ground for a hundred thousand years so the human brain still has an advantage uh over ai i mean it'll probably get there one day but uh but right now um it, it's no no one has has done it um and so yeah, palynology is really still the digging holes of science. There is like you have to get a shovel and you have to just keep digging until you get there. Yeah, but well, we we love that practical work. It's uh, it's part of the of the charm of of a lot of sciences, I think. Yeah, and I I think yeah, I mean one of the other reasons I like it is if my if my microscope breaks down, I go and get a a light bulb and I I fix it and it works again. Yeah. Whereas all yeah. these guys who've got their fancy chemistry machines and all these like big big things like they break it and then they're sort of shut down for two weeks whilst they're trying to fix out and work out what tiny little things wrong find so, a grant to, to ask the government for a few million to get a new laser exactly <laughs> so, yeah no i do like the the simple the simple side of it is um that allows you to push push on with stuff is um yeah, yeah it's good that practical side is fun so are the um the, the pollen grains that you find so are they the primary source of information in, in, in that study? And what can they tell you? Like, how, how do you kind of... Okay, so um, pollen is probably our primary source of information about past vegetation change. So pollen mm. are produced by, produced by plants, and they are widely dispersed in the environment. And what's great about them is they preserve in the, in the record, so in, the, in sediment. So as long as it stays wet, the pollen grains go into the into the sediments and they sit there 
And so they represent whatever vegetation you have around your, your lake. And you can go in and you can tell. So we've been working a lot on uh, a lake record from Ghana in West Africa. And so what was the vegetation change there? What's, what's nice about West Africa is that a meteorite hit it a million years ago and created a really, really big hole. And in 2004, a team of scientists, which I wasn't involved in, raised a sedimentary core from the bottom. So about 300 vertical meters of sediment that had accumulated in this hole in the ground that the meteorite had punched. And what I did uh, with, with colleagues and PhD students was go in and extract the pollen from that, uh, those different layers within there to build up a time series of, of how vegetation has changed through well, we've only done the top 500,000 years so far. There's another half a million years sitting down there waiting to be looked at. But what we can track from that is that relationship between the forest and the savanna. So like the grasslands versus the, versus the forests. And so how has that moved? And what's the relationship of that with climate? And if we can start to think about those dynamics, so we can start to think about, we, start, we can track the vegetation using the pollen, and then we can use other proxies um, that tell us about the climate or tell us about the amount of fire within the landscape or tell us about the amount of animals in the landscape. And then we can start to think about the processes and that all those things together get us to where we are today. And so it also allows us to do sensitivity testing. If we, if we know what happened to a system where, okay, in the past, this went from being a forest and a savanna in 2000 years. Why did that happen? What were the critical factors that drove that? And we can start to get into teasing apart those things. So when we think about the future and we look at trajectories of change that are projected for the future, we can start to put that into a context. Has this happened before? What, can we, can we use this as kind of a, 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 an experiment uh, of, of going back? We have great information from observational studies, um, of, uh, but only over centuries at most and decades and even years uh, most of the time. But an ecosystem? An ecosystem assembles over a thousand years. Like societies and climates develop over hundreds to thousands of years to actually get empirical data about that not to say that models aren't useless, but models are models, right? So like, but to get empirical data on these sort of timescales, you need to start to explore uh, the, the sedimentary record, the paleoecological record, the paleoclimatic record, uh, and put these things together. And that's what I've done a lot of things, as, as you said, I've quite a, <laughs> worked in different locations, but it's all about trying to thread these things together and build get an idea about how the earth and earth systems function i think it would be a kind of yeah way. i mean in some sense you're like a historian i mean you you track what's yeah. happened in the past exactly so i mean you you there's there's lots of different words for this i mean vegetation history is like there are um a, definitely a, a a term that is uh used out there um i'm in fact associate editor on the the journal vegetation history and archaeobotany there's another good word for you archaeobotany <laughs> so uh so the ancient ancient plant remains um and these types of studies are, are are really important for that context because otherwise 
yeah, how do we how do we know we, where we got to, and and if the change that we're observing today is is important or not? And speaking of uh, changes, one area that you've studied that has seen an enormous amount of change is uh, the island of Mauritius. Mm-hmm. Um, we just read your your paper on uh, called Mauritius on Fire: Tracking Historical Human Impacts on Biodiversity Loss from 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I know, I I don't know what the right word is because I feel like I ex- I should have expected the results that you wrote about um which was you know extinction events uh starting within 50 years of human impact um but i think i still i still felt this sort of sadness in me that that this was it that there that the results were so bad that what was it 92 98 percent of all endemic vegetation mm-hmm. uh natural vegetation was was gone um i don't know it just seemed like human impact was was a much more real when you when you see the example of Mauritius and just to give our listeners a a quick kind of overview of this um could you maybe explain what this paper was about and why Mauritius is such uh in, an interesting case in this yeah so so the Mauritius study was a particularly um yeah fun one for me it was a little bit of a departure it was I took this project on just just after I'd um, arrived at the University of Amsterdam, and and the second author on the paper, Jonna de Kruijf, was in fact my first um, bachelor student that I supervised a project of, and uh, he came to me, and um, I'd not worked in Mauritius before, and we needed a project, so I collaborated with with Eric de Boer and Henry Hukomstra, who had been working on Mauritius previously, and they'd got some uh, additional. Uh, material from previous projects and Mauritius I, I've never been there uh, unfortunately but it's, it's iconic for the loss of the dodo I mean the dodo was was on the island and um, to, so to work in a place where you were which is such a, a kind of sort of iconic place for the destructive impact of people on landscapes and uh, what we wanted to do was to go in and see if we could track um, that we have great historical records, but could we use the sedimentary archive to track what they were doing? And, and we used fire or the evidence of past fires to really get a handle on that. Now, fires, one of, the, one of the nice universal truths of humans across the planet is when they arrive somewhere new, they like to burn stuff. <laughs> like, it's just like one of those universal just human truths. Crazy pyromaniacs. Yeah, they, they go in and they, they burn stuff, whether it's for clearance or whether it's for um, cooking or whatever it is. So a great signature, particularly if you're going into a tropical island system which doesn't burn naturally, you just see this very clear signal that, are, that, that allows people turn up on the island and you get this fire it switches on and and you you start to see this so what we did was look at very fine scale resolution samples really close together to see how closely we could tack the um this fire history to the uh history of um either introductions of species so people don't just kill species they also brought into onto Mauritius rats and cats and crickets and all these other good things which also destroyed other wildlife and uh, they took out the raven parrot they took out the dodo they took out giant tortoises uh giant fruit bats and they um had um 
could we see this? And because in Mauritius we have these historical records as well as the, the paleoecological record, the past fire record, we could start to join these up. And then this gives you quite confidence where you go to other areas where you don't have the historical record. But even I was quite astounded by how closely the, um, the history of the fire on the island tracked people. I mean, you basically have no major fire until you get the arrival of the Dutch. The Dutch come onto the island, fire kicks off. Um, and that first wave has its biggest impact on those animals and that, that you can see the intensity of that, that impact because you lose those, those species quite quickly. And it's not that the fire is killing these things directly, but the fire is, a, is evidence for a proxy for the amount of human activity, which is right, disrupting yeah. and, and, uh, 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 and taking out those systems. And so, in all the so you look at, you guys look at the sustained fire activity, right? Not just mm -hmm. single bits, because I'm guessing you could have massive forest fires every now and then. Um, Although, I don't know. I'm not sure how, so, how common so, they are. Yeah. So on Mauritius, what we found was if you go back um, a thousand years, prior to the arrival of people, fire was a really rare occurrence on that island. It really didn't happen very often. And then as you um, get people in there, fire becomes frequent and more abundant. So they're more... Um, what, we're, what we're actually counting is we're taking a bit of sediments and we're looking at the numbers of fragments of charcoal material that we're, we're putting out there. And the principle is the more you burn, the more charcoal you produce, the more charcoal gets into the, into the record. So prior to 1600 AD, we have very rare occurrences of, of, of charcoal fragments within that record. After that, we have hundreds, if not thousands of small uh, particles And we have tens and hundreds of, of large particles um, of charcoal coming up within our sediment core. And so you can just use that as, a, as a, what we call a proxy. Um, so it's an indicator of evidence of that activity. And we can't reconstruct exactly how much was burnt, but we can say there's a relative shift. Here there is more, there there is less. And so... Um, With the Mauritius record, we see like the, the, the Dutch come in, fire goes up. Then the Dutch drop out and the French take over. And then there's, interestingly, there's like this gap in the fire record. The fire just goes away. And, and we're like, well, why is that? We've got, and then we realize that right smack in the middle of that time period is the French Revolution. The French were somehow busy at home, not worrying so <laughs> yeah, much about <laughs> their, uh, their Mauritius and, and the numbers of people on the island actually dropped. And so you don't see this fire record because like it's directly causative. Then the French sort of sort themselves out again, come back in. The fire uh, record strips back up. There's actually the biggest fire peak in the record we see is right around the time of the... Uh, a big battle between the, the French and the British navies just off the coast of Mauritius. And I kind of want to go in there. Like I kind of like in my head, I have this fantasy that this is like bits of burning ships that are yeah. going, like going up in the air and coming down on the island. But that's probably complete nonsense. But, um, <laughs> but I kind of have that in my head that this is the, the kind of battle in the, in the record. And the, the, then the British burn it. And then, and then we lose the fire record again. And again, this puzzled us. Like, like, why, are, why is, we, we know there's people there. We know. And then it, then we realize it's like, well, they've burnt everything. 
And so we also mm -hmm. looked at these like land use maps and this area across and like, this is right around the time that basically the area around our study site where we were looking on Mauritius is completely cleared out. The British had replaced it with uh, intensive um, sugarcane crops, which they smolder burn, but doesn't produce any charcoal. Uh, and so until you then switch back to a different mode of operation on the island, uh, at the period of independence, the Republic of Mauritius is 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 formed. Um, you then lose fire from that system because because basically anything that's going to create a big amount of charcoal has gone from the site. So, um, and you look at the final the final maps, and there's so small fragments of the natural vegetation left. Um, um, yeah, th those those little um, uh, maps next to each other in the mm -hmm. paper are really scary. I mean. Just to see the the endemic species just disappear bit by bit over such a short period of time, and just the green area reduces to almost nothing. You almost can't see it anymore. It's uh, it's really scary. It goes out of there. One of the things that's also interesting. It wasn't part of this project, but a uh, a project by Eric DeBoer, who's involved in this study. He was looking at the the vegetation history of Mauritius, and uh, so he reconstructed what the, the the swamps looked like, what the, the, the natural vegetation would be going back over um, uh, before people came. And what they did was they created uh, with some sort of software developers a virtual Mauritius based on the sort of botanically correct reconstruction of the environment. So you could actually walk around Mauritius as it would be 2,000 years ago before it got trashed. Which is really cool because what it does, it allows you to go to people like, um, like government planners. And like, so if you go to a government planner with a pollen diagram, you don't have a lot of impact. But if you go with a, like, a set of VR goggles and say, look, this is the ecotourism <laughs> resort you can create. Plug into Steam, yeah. <laughs> click play. <laughs> exactly. But if you can convince them, like, okay, you've got this landscape that's barren. You're, like, if you want to generate a tourist industry, you want to do this. It's worth investing in this. This is the kind of natural ecosystems you can create and foster. And this is what your island could be like. And let people see that potential because a lot of people are just unaware of this kind of hidden past of, of what, what natural vegetation was uh, in, in locations. And, and, and every country is, is, has that. I mean, I think understanding what the natural vegetation in the UK or the Netherlands was, well, I know what it was in the Netherlands, mainly sea. Uh, but uh, <laughs> so um, it's, it is really important when you're thinking about conservation questions and, and how people want to manage the landscape and what its potential could be. Do you think tourism in this regard can be a force for good? It can be a good motivator for um, conserving the environment or bring bring back, you know, natural environments. I think if there are, yes, the short answer is yes. I think if you can, if you can find this as a as a way, people you can finance and you can make profitable the livelihoods because people have to live in these landscapes. Like it's like it's one of the you've got to understand that that you can't just say, no, we have to conserve this natural rainforest. And one of the, I call it a problem, but one of the things that's, that's, that's interesting to note about global conservation policies is that in somewhere like Europe, a lot of conservation is about preserving cultural landscapes and uh, that value on cultural landscapes is pretty high. 
Whereas if you think about a lot of tropical regions in places like Mauritius or places in South America, a lot of it's about, oh, we must preserve natural systems. But we don't really know what those natural systems are and how what the past cultural influence was on them. And this kind of value judgment about what you should do with that system is essentially, yeah, uninformed uh, in a lot of ways. So I think you have to try and find a force for good, which allows the people who live in these regions today, who who uh, want to survive and want to have a good uh, good standard of living, and which they should be entitled to, of course. And um, that we should be we should be if if something like this sort of information they can use to inspire them to uh, to develop their resources and to create uh, things where tourists come in, which improves their livelihoods. Then, yeah, I think it can be if done in the right way um uh can be uh can be a, a force for good um but yeah we were talking about this with uh george yordicescu in uh in our episode on romania deforestation he was telling us mm-hmm. the the he was telling us about the kind of as you said this issue or the thing to note about um about conservation projects and how it's not really a, a positive thing in, in a lot of places to try and keep it to have that the idea of like untouched nature because it's not it's not the the little kind of small romanian farmers living in the in the carpathian they're they're destroying the the forest you know just like if mauritius had native um dating back thousands of years they probably would have known how to take care of the island in a way that that minimizes their own impact and not like a spill oil in Mauritius like like we do <laughs> um I just want to quickly before we move on to your um, education uh position and what you've done with it I just want to ask quickly how exactly are you able to tell when something happened um so I'm, I'm I've heard of it. I mean, it's uh, as far as I'm aware, it's called radiocarbon uh, mm-hmm. calibration or basically carbon dating. Um, could you maybe explain to us a little bit about how you you can look at that hundred centimeter of soil and tell like this how, happened then? How old it is? Yeah, that's a really great question, and it depends. So there are a bunch of different ways of um, getting ages on um, on things, and one of the the best ways of getting uh, age estimates over the last few tens of thousand years is is indeed radiocarbon um, dating. Now, radiocarbon uh, is uh, uh, an isotopic decay rate, so you you know how quickly carbon fourteen decays, and that's measurable. You can measure its half life, and you know that this amount of carbon, which is incorporated into all living things, but when you die, it starts to decay. And we can measure the amount of radiocarbon that is left in in the dead wood or the dead organic material that is there. And that allows us to extrapolate back. It's not my areas of expertise, but precisely, I'm not a a dating person. I I do do the process, but it's absolutely fundamental to what we do. And what you can do is you can then get multiple dates you can string them together and you construct a chronology that allows you to give the most probable rate at which the sediment has accumulated. We don't know. 
unless you have something like a volcanic eruption where you know the exact date, like this eruption happened on this date, and then you find the layer of the ash and, uh, and you see it and you go, right, this is 1804. Uh, and we know that because this big eruption and we tied it to the volcano. So unless you have that kind of dating technique, most of these things are age estimates and uh, they are give us a, uh, a good insight into those rates of accumulation. And with the modern techniques, radiocarbon uh, being pri- the primary one on these sort of timescales is um, – we can get pretty close. I mean, we had a, a really nice uh, different study on the Eastern Andean flank um, in Ecuador where we knew we had a, a record similar length to the, the Mauritius one where we had pre-Hispanic arrival agriculture. We had a massive spike in charcoal right around the time, uh, 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 like at the end of that agriculture which coincided beautifully when we got the dates with the uprising against the Spanish. So we have this uh, indigenous culture living in the landscape to conducting maize agriculture, massive spike in charcoal, and then essentially abandonment as the, uh, as the vegetation recovers because the Spanish essentially either kill or push off all those people that have been living in that landscape for a number of hundreds of years um, and then you get the recovery of the vegetation following it. So that's quite nice because we had a lot of radiocarbon dates, which give us a date, and then it makes sense historically. So we can we can tie it across. So you can get you can get uh, this combination of events and uh, and the radiometric estimates works very yeah. well together. It seems like there's a lot of different ways to to date things back. Um, I mean, I, I'm just reading now a book on the like complete history of Kosovo, um, mm-hmm. the, the wannabe country. Uh, and they, one of the really, really interesting things that the author does uh, almost in the sort of Indian Jones way uh, with linguistics is that he, he is able to kind of date back um, when the people living in Kosovo arrived in uh, from the mountains to the plains, mm-hmm. because specific words have roots that come from uh languages that are kind of uh sorry specific words have roots that come from no other language that we know of and so those words uh for sometimes for like mountainous things have mm-hmm. no roots in in uh in the Kosovo kind of Albanian language mm-hmm. whereas the more plain kind of word, related words have roots in slavic um, and so we're okay. kind of able to tell that they started in the mountains where they kind of developed their language and their culture and then came down to the plains. And there's like all these really interesting ways of dating things. I wonder if it would be possible to to do a sort of mixed um, mixed dating technique research to, to to make things as kind of specific as possible to cross things like carbon dating with with. Um, with fire uh, records and, and historical records as well, like written records and, and all these things to try and really kind of prove each other in a sense. Yeah, no, that, that kind of multi-proxy approach is really actually going to be the only way that we get to um, get to an overall view of things because you can't, we don't have sedimentary records everywhere we'd like them. 
like they just don't make meteorites hit the earth at all the right places unfortunately so like there's like there's just not those sedimentary archives in 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 all the all the places you want to look at so you have to look at other approaches one of the areas where it's it's i've thought a little bit about this is uh with the polynesian islands so having the um the spread of the linguistics across the the South Pacific is, is really interesting. And we're starting to look at uh, sedimentary records there where we can track actually. So the, the fire histories and the, um, the archeology, span other people are doing the archeology. span And so we can start to bring these various things. There's also genetic records from across there where you can get estimates of ages to try and get new insights into those uh, population spreads across the islands and that's a, a nice case study area because yeah it's quite you know well not simple but it's like there are very distinct breaks between the islands you can you can see as these these things come in and and just to come back to your the we were thinking about Mauritius earlier and the that huge human impact that that happens when the first people arrived on Mauritius we did a, a an equivalent study uh, on Samoa and one of the interesting things was that when you contrast that, we still get uh, like an increase in the amount of charcoal that we find in those records there when people come onto those islands. But it's the magnitude of that impact is rather than tens to hundreds of, of, of particles, it's like, I don't know, we get up to 10. Like, and we don't see any big change in the vegetation. So those f- first people that arrived on that island um, three or 4,000 years ago, they were there, they were doing stuff, but they didn't radically alter those ecosystems. And so it's about the numbers, it's about what they're doing. It's, and so you can have people, you can detect people entering system ecosystems where they don't have a catastrophic or, or a, a massive uh, change to that ecosystem. Of course, they'll have, have some sort of impact, but like, did they clear all the vegetation in, in, in a few uh, hundred years? No, they didn't. Well, maybe they did that on Easter Island a few, few hops further on because that's obviously a classic human impact uh, study. So it's, there's a bunch of different factors, but it doesn't always have to be humans equal destruction. I think that's also a, an important message to, to have out there. Um, so yeah, that's uh, an interesting place to look as well. I'd like to ask a bit about your kind of more about your career and your projects you've been working on specifically. Why do you think it's important for the public to be engaged with science rather than, you know, why isn't it sufficient for scientists to just present the facts since they're the experts after all? Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, it's a it's an interesting interesting question. I mean, the science often operates in a broadcast mode, and uh, I'm not sure that's necessarily the best way to to get people to either agree with um, what you're doing or to convince people of uh, of what the value is in, in what you're doing. Engaging people with science allows them to have yeah a deeper understanding. If you've got someone telling you to do something. Uh, then uh, as opposed to you looking at the evidence, being involved within it and being maybe even a part of generating that evidence, you're much more likely to be responsive to um, acting upon it, changing your lifestyle uh, uh, and seeing, seeing 
how that works. So I think um, engaging people, and I think that word engagement is really key. Uh, how how can we do that is um, is quite important. Um, yeah, I started getting involved in this. We had for the British Ecological Society. We for in 2013 the society had its centenary, and we wanted to have a festival festival of ecology to celebrate 100 years. And um, we, with uh, a, a lady called Emma Sayer and Helen Featherstone, and I think we were sitting around in a pub somewhere in London, and we were thinking about festival ecology. What could we do for this? And someone came up with, uh, probably Emma, the idea of why don't we take ecology to festivals, like music festivals? Uh, and so we thought, okay, um, yeah, I wonder if they'll give us money for that. So we sort of came up with some ideas and uh, went back to the society and said, okay, um, how about how about a festival of ecology which allows us to actually go to music festivals? And they said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And we went, okay, that sounds like a great idea. Uh, so so well, then then the question was, what what can you do? What I do at, at, at music festivals? Because you have a taking science two people i mean if you science festivals are great but they tend to have a self-selecting part of the public whereas if you go into a shopping center which i've done in milton Keynes, where i used to be based at the open university uh and taking science there or turning up at a, a music festival with a, a giant cockroach costume um yeah people ask you questions and you you very very quickly get into conversations so um yeah i've never um, researched cockroaches or done anything with cockroaches um, in my life, but like wandering around a music festival dressed as a giant cockroach allowed me to engage with uh, with people in a way that I couldn't do otherwise. And they say, "Oh, what are you? Why are you like that?" It's like oh, I'm with the British Ecological Society. Oh, you're a scientist. Yes, I'm a scientist. What do you do? Oh, I'm a paleoecologist. And then. I get into that story and that narrative about science. And so you can get into conversations and people, people are interested in science and people are, you get, get to see all people like, Oh yeah, I love nature. I've got all these great tattoos or and <laughs> like, uh, which is a fantastic. Got a tattoo of a cockroach as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's like, people, people find that it's like one lady. I mean, I'll never forget. It was a little, a little bit scary. Uh, it's like, she's like, yeah, I, I collect insects. I've got a dead insect army at home cool. and <laughs> get insects and put like little silver foil cloaks on them and makes them weapons. Um, <laughs> oh and so you meet all sorts of kind of interesting people and like, um, yeah. And also other people who are like, oh yeah, I used to work in the lab of Krebs, who was like one of the, the sort of foremost ecologists, biologists. And you're sort of like, oh yeah. So you never know as a scientist, as a person, it's, it's super exciting because you just don't know who you're going to meet. And uh, dressing as a cockroach is strangely disarming for people. Then, <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the other key, uh, we had a number of things. We had a swab thrown where we cultured the um, uh, the who'd got the most microbes on their kit, like their festival yeah. kit. So we got like the most microbes out of some like child's little cuddly toy. Um, which was kind of fun, um, which I'm sucking away at. Yeah, uh, I swear they have entire ecosystems living on those things. They literally, literally do, yeah, like uh, absolutely. And we cultured them and showed them. Um, <sighs> we had oh, one of the, the, the greatest games was a, a tray of poo. 
Uh, so, so like not not real poo, but like it's called repliscat. If you want to get yourself a <laughs> repliscat, and um, we have we'll put the, that on the episode title: repliscat yeah, and the fire histories. <laughs> we we had um, every I think it was uh, all, all the British mammals. I think so. Like we got like fox and badger and like a whole bunch of stuff, and so the and pictures, and so you have a tray with poo on it. And some pictures. And the game is you go up to people and go, like, can you identify this poo? And that's also very difficult for people to, like, walk away from. Like, that's just, like, too appealing. It's irresistible. Uh, irresistible <laughs> thing. So, at that point, you've got – and then you use these things as icebreakers and, and you use them to get into the conversations. Yeah. And so I think that's also – yeah, it's important for scientists to get out there and to actually and, – and for people to – realize that yeah we're actually real people as well and um not just just talking heads yeah i i do feel like um a lot of people don't have unfortunately don't have um a sufficient i'd say like science education it seems um i i think i was quite lucky in belgium to to have one Uh, i think seemed to be to be quite good but i have seen in other places Especially, I think, in places that don't have, um, what do you call it, that don't have, like, curriculums where where science is a necessary part of your education. Um, for example, this is one of my big critiques of the, the English uh, education system is that after your GCSEs, you can kind of kick science out the door for the, your last two years, as I understand it, at least, for your A-levels. Um, whereas in Belgium, we continue to do science until we graduate from high school. And so I feel like for a lot of people, it must be really weird to have scientists kind of appear to them because if, if they stop doing science in high school, then they only maybe see a scientist or two on TV saying like, you know, saying kind of rehearsed lines about like big, broad topics like climate change and kind of not really engaging with them, at least. So I, I feel like that's something that's missing um, from science. Yeah. Well, I'll give you a, a lay into a secret. My, uh, my A-levels before I went to, to university were geography, history, and English literature. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'd done a bit of archaeology on this. And then I kind of came back into science. So I then did a, a, a physical geography degree. And then I sort of, mainly because I did my A-levels quite badly. Um, and, then, uh, and then went and did uh, a quaternary science masters at cambridge so like i've got rubbish a levels but i managed to get a master's degree at cambridge so like it's like you kind of come in sideways and then i went into geography departments but then biology departments and earth science departments and so you can kind of like sitting at that interface i think is really fun but i think what you say is is true because yeah a lot of people like drop uh, science at, at after gcse and i found science at that point, I was just not interested in doing science. It was uh, I'd done a general science GCSE, and it was not like I was more interested in English literature and, and history and, and those sort of historical stuff. Um, but I didn't see science as a route into that. Um, it just hadn't woken up in my brain yet, and it wasn't until I got to university where I decided I really ought to work um, and, and do something that 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 I started to engage with that scientific side of things. But uh, yeah, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the COVID situation, how most people's um, experience with like health science is probably for like this whole year is probably just going to be 
this one head of a science team on TV saying, stay indoors, the virus is spreading. You know, it, it's not a very good engagement to just be told things and not being able to engage with it. So um, I know we have to kind of wrap things up a little, but I wanted to ask um, maybe what you found in your tenure um, at the society, but also maybe just in your general experience what is the best way to have that engagement with people who are maybe not that interested? Um, is it the festival kind of outings? Is it maybe, um, you know, having things happen earlier, maybe in primary school or middle school kind of time? I think it's this, yeah, this, yeah. One is having, Getting to, getting to people early, getting involved with schools. I mean, one of the things we've done for the British Ecological Society is run summer schools of 16 to 18-year-olds um, and try and get them inspired about science uh, and to just uh, get them doing projects with, with academics, put university academics into that summer school uh, and to do things online. I mean, uh, uh, online this year, but in physical sense in previous years. I mean, this year they had... Um, we had to change it all around at a very short notice. So they used, I don't know if you know Minecraft, the game, Minecraft. Yeah. <laughs> Jamie and I have, uh, I think, a few million hours on the game. Well, they used Minecraft as one of their main teaching tools because you can generate random environments in there. So they taught sampling strategy right. rather than going out into a field. They did it in the Minecraft world. I've never played Minecraft. I don't know how this works. But like uh, this is uh, the, using these platforms to engage with people and to get them uh, get them involved early is good. But I also think there's a lot of citizen science projects out there now. I'm not running them myself. But things like your very simple kind of nature watch, bird watching observations. They have a big butterfly survey here in the Netherlands where people actively contribute something they can feel like they're making a, a, a difference and then they, they they pay attention to the results and they can pay uh and, and i think that becomes when it's generated by a community science is a social endeavor it's funded by society through governments but it is in a large part funded uh, social so scientists have a responsibility to do um to 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 engage and communicate with that with that that audience that is is supporting them and, and done them and i think it is right for those experts to have an opinion on um the issues of the day because they are the experts if you like but also they uh it is important that yeah people are brought with them you're not just telling people what to do like you say this talking head that says right stay indoors and don't go outside because mm, because eventually people get fed up with that. Like, and I mean, I think one of the one of the simplest messages that often gets lost in sort of in the climate change debate um, is people's like scientists are also often trying to be clever and have the latest, the newest thing. Um, global climate for the last million years or so has fluctuated in relationship to global carbon dioxide and it's gone up and down by x amount right and that takes us between having an ice sheet here in the netherlands and the modern conditions right and then people have basically added on that x again that difference so you've basically gone from the difference between having like an ice sheet here and well now well 1800s or whatever it is 1850s and then we've gone and plugged that on top like it's gonna have an impact 
like it's just like yeah, yeah. it's it's like a like exactly what that impact is is much more complicated question but like we have fundamentally changed the system by basically taking it out of the normal operating space for the last million years yeah, and I think that the that's, speed of change is what's yeah. badly communicated is, is yeah that's true yeah. yeah understanding rates rates of change and uncertainty is two of the biggest challenges yeah yeah, for sure. Um, and just uh, very quickly on, on that. Um, sorry, I, I didn't want to let you go before I asked this. Um, for the, your Mauritius paper, in terms of mm-hmm. rates of change, um, I was wondering what we could learn from Mauritius, because as I understood it, it seemed to be almost like a Petri dish of, of, uh, of a little science experiment of, you know, we can actually tell what happens when, as you said, we can actually tell what happens when humans touch up on the island um but i was wondering what we could learn from that like what were your conclusions past the fire uh, and charcoal recording techniques what can we learn and then plug into maybe our our understanding of of let's say europe or, or north america or africa or just other places than islands as well so I think what's what's really useful about this this type of study and, and looking in other places is that we can use um, again not to dictate what we can do but to use it as inspiration. I think it's about showing people what the potential is. Like if we go back to this stage, it's about create uh, giving people a window into what is natural. Like like people say, oh, we're going to recreate natural systems, but what is that? And it almost nowhere is completely untouched by people on, on planet earth today. And so, but what is that, what is that system that we want to reconstruct and also why, and what do we have to do to make it function? So it's about thinking about not just planting trees because maybe they'll fail because we haven't got the right seed dispersers, but it's about thinking about the whole system. So I I really like the Mauritius thing about like reconstructing it and getting this idea of what we can recreate we can do that in Europe as well. We can go back and we kind of know what those landscapes would have been like. There are a lot of pollen records from Europe um, and North America. There are a lot of these things. And we can actually, if you look in, in California, for example, where they're having all these terrible fires at the moment, those fire regimes, we can go back and we can look at those records and know what that natural fire regime ought to have been like. We, that, that, that can be tracked, that can be done. And then so, okay, as humans can we implement or mimic what that system would should should be like or, or, or was like so you don't have this kind of building up and then running away of things uh, and those sort of things. So can we draw inspiration? I don't think we want to be dialing the clock back, and I think conservationists would be, because it's impossible. The states have changed too many things, but we can use this as a guide, as a, a, as a way forward for for management. And it's important to have this context because – you don't want to be trying to do something that never happened. So like people were trying to afforest the Andes, like, Oh, these little forest fragments that are left there and there, they were much, much more extensive. So let's try and forest the whole of the Andes. Well, that's just not true. If we look in the fossil record, like, yeah, the forests were more extensive for sure, but was it ever one big continuous forested uh, environment? Not as far as we've got evidence for yet. Um, so like, uh, so it's, it's about placing it into that context so that you make conservation strategies and, uh, and policies that are, are one realistic and two likely to be, uh, effective and putting those processes back into the landscape and putting those, um, the, the, 
the the inspiration of what could it could be like i think is really important william gosling thank you so much for joining us thank you thank you very much that was super fun yeah it's fun for us too i think we learned we learned a lot and um definitely look forward to seeing maybe a little bit of the the, your royal society um yeah doing some conferences maybe outside of covid maybe (laughs) who knows we'll we'll show up with a mic and and interview people (laughs) yeah that'd be super fun yeah no Maybe that, we'll come dressed as a cockroach. That would be that would be that would be the, <laughs> the the ultimate. Like we could all we could all choose our favorite animal and dress up favorite favorite insect and and, and up there. Yeah. do do interviews in in cockroach costumes would be good. <laughs> as always, thank you so much for listening. You can find all of our other episodes on every streaming platform out there: Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, etc., etc. If you'd like to follow us, we've got Insta, Twitter, Facebook, all those socials you'll get the latest info about episode releases bonus episodes and even a special infographic series we're starting up soon you can find all these links easily at linktr.ee slash human odyssey podcast that's linktr.ee slash human odyssey podcast or you can send us an email at human odyssey the podcast at gmail.com big thank you this week to our patreons gracious still and always nadia shadia pablo and tommy We appreciate your support so, so much. If you'd like to help us financially continue this project in return for rewards, you can head also to our Patreon at www.patreon slash human odyssey podcast. Subscriptions start for as little as two euros a month and you can get some cool things in return. 